We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Good morning. Brian Mazarowski here, uh, joined live in studio, roundtable discussion, Charlie Spector and Steve Boyd, talking about everything that's gone on over the last 24-plus hours in the Diocese of Buffalo, from the resignation of Buffalo Bishop Richard Malone to the appointment of a new apostolic administrator. That's Edward Scharfenberger. I'll learn how to uh, spell his name probably by the time his uh, time here is up. That's uh, nice thing about radio. You don't have to spell his name. <laughs> well, I have to read it, so that's uh, you know almost the same. Um, Ed, yeah, yeah, Ed is uh, yeah, Ed, not uh, Bishop Head. That's the, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. Don't confuse the old one with the new one. Uh, but uh, a lot has gone on, and so uh, who better to talk about than two people who have been, you know, really from uh, with this story from the beginning. And we're taking some of your calls here on WBEM. Why don't we go to uh, Gary? Gary, you're on WBEM. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Is this Gary Astridge? This is Gary Astridge. Gary is a, a client of ours, and Gary, um, Gary, why don't you tell uh, when your abuse started? Yeah, my abuse started uh, uh, in the early 60s, around 63, when I was seven years old, and um, it lasted until the time my family left uh, the neighborhood in Buffalo that, that we lived in and uh, moved out to uh, the suburbs in 1967, so... I had um, uh, a number of years of abuse, um, and because uh, of it, now go ahead. I, I, I think a, a lot of people wonder when they hear a story similar to yours, because uh, there are a lot of stories similar to yours where this was a long pattern of abuse, and people would, I would imagine, one of the first questions you get is, how did it last so long? You know, why did it last that long? Yeah, well, um, it really gets detailed. There wouldn't be enough time to, 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 to go through it. I, I guess I, I, I get too detailed with this, but in the neighborhood I grew up in, it was a small street, a Polish Catholic neighborhood. We were pretty much limited to, like, not going outside, outside the bounds of that uh, street. Um, and... Uh, you know, there was all, it was like two family homes, you know, with porches up on the top floor. Neighbors or, or the mothers always standing up there watching us, patrolling us. And we had a uh, St. Florian's Church and School at one corner. And uh, right across the street from that was a convent. Right behind our home was Cardinal Doherty High School. And so apparently, you know, the families must have thought, you know, that we were very well protected. You know, it was. It was it was a great upbringing, but there was this evil that lurked um, under the surface, and that evil was um, uh, a priest named Father Townsend who taught at Cardinal Doherty. And when people ask me, like, "Here, so how did you how did you meet this guy?" 
And my answer was like, he was always there. You know, I was one of the younger kids out of the 15 that, that I remember from the neighborhood. And um, uh, no one said anything. And, and after the fact, once I realized what happened, I tracked some of the people down, talked to them, and even even some family members that lived on that street. And everyone denied it. And, and some even called me a liar, saying I was making things up. And it wasn't until recently, um, yeah, some of them you know, are choosing not to come forward, but I'm finding out that you know, that they're finally saying, yeah, he, he got us too. So um, that gave me some uh, credibility, you know, I guess to myself to, to feel better that I wasn't the only one. But, uh, yeah, but it, it's just been tough to deal with. And the one thing that's surprising for, for, for me was that uh, um, I think it was either, had to be last year, I discovered that the same priest, was molesting a boy in New Hampshire in uh, uh, in the 70s. So 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 it was kind of a sad uh, state in, in my head, thinking, "Wow, okay, you know, it, it wasn't just my neighborhood. So now here's like a, a, a someone else that, that had it happen to them, and he did report it. So it kind of gave me validation of he, he did do it. You know, so um, it's a, a sad way for me for me to get some validation from that. Gary, I, this is Charlie Specht. I remember uh, you know, talking to you over a year ago, and one of the things that you were struggling with was because uh, Father Townsend was uh, a member of a religious order, the diocese was not putting him on any sort of a, a list here, essentially saying that it, it didn't count almost. Um, and I remember trying to track down with you, trying to find the basic details of you know a picture of him and where he was assigned, and it was kind of like you know, decades after the fact, it was this mystery that you were trying to solve on your own. Can you just talk about what it means, you know, to you as a survivor to to see that name and why it's important for to see the institution sort of acknowledge that and put something out there about it? Yeah, okay. like, well, for me, it just makes it real, you know, and, and it was one of those things for, for me to know that um, people knew what was going on, but no one would say anything. And, and, and I keep saying the same thing of I just know I was a quiet kid, you know, and um, I've never spoke up, never said anything, just suppressed the memories. But but now it's just like uh, uh, it just makes me feel more empowering to, to know that um, I am right. And, you know, it's funny with me speaking out. A lot of people say, oh, God, you're so brave. You're so courageous. And, and it's not it at all. Not, not at all. But there's a part of me feels that. Um, it's telling the people that I might not be able to get in touch with that, C, I was right. And B, because of how that abuse changed me radically as a little boy into who I am now, you know, I am more cognizant of why I am the way I am. It's, it, it enables me to better myself. But for all the people that I hurt that I might never see again, hopefully they'll hear uh, uh, something like this. You know, hear me on the radio, hear me on TV, and it'll apologize to them, or, or, or it's my apology to them, and, and hopefully they'll be able to say, that's why you were the way you were. That's why you hurt me the way you did. And it's and it's my I'm sorry. I think it's important for you to know that Gary 
and Mike Whalen and Kevin Koselniak and um, Andrew Valino and Chris Tiflita have been getting together since their lawsuits were filed at midnight on August 14th on basically a weekly basis, and they formed the Buffalo Survivors Group. And just about two, three weeks ago, they uh, held um, a talk at St. Mary's Parish out in Swarmsville for people to come in and have a real listening session to hear from the survivors. And I, I was lucky enough to attend that night. The weather was terrible, so the attendance wasn't great, but it was there were a, a good number of people there. Um, I think it's important that people like Gary and, and the rest of the Buffalo Survivors Group are not only bringing their voices to this, but bringing their leadership to this to say, you know what, if you really want to know, if you really want to hear what a survivor has to say, don't just skeptically sit around the dinner table and say, ah, how are they ever going to prove their case? Come meet them. Come talk to them. Come look them eye to eye, face to face, and see what kind of people they are. And then I think you'll have a true perspective of what these survivors are going through and who they are that are bringing this story to light. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. Uh, Gary, I'm wondering what the last 24 hours have been like to you because so many people will look at what's happened with uh, the bishop being, um, you know, whatever way you want to look at it, removed, uh, resigning. How does that impact somebody who suffered abuse in the past? How are you taking the last 24 hours? Does it matter to you going forward? You know, it's interesting with you asking that question is prior to the day starting, I would say deep down it really didn't matter. But now that it has happened and after listening to uh, a lot of what's been said, um, yeah, I guess it, it, uh, it does matter. It is a big step forward. I know there's a lot of changes that have to be made. Um, but when I look at the Catholic Church, the way it's set up, I, I, I sound redundant, but I, I just keep looking at uh, that organization as an international corporation. And, and I, you know, with, with, with having a business background, I just look at this and I say, God, you know what? A, it, you know, if the Catholic Church was like an international company, where would you have that many pedophiles? And, and also, how would a CEO handle this? I mean, there would be a house cleaning so fast that um, it would make your head spin. And I just scratch my head thinking, like, what takes the church so long? And uh, but but it is a fresh start. Hopefully they'll clean house here. I mean, I think that was evident yesterday with with what I heard Charlie say this morning or earlier about uh, uh, the media being restricted to one reporter, one camera, one question. So like, you know, the Albany staff, media staff saying, no, ask as many questions as you uh, would like. I mean, to me, that was refreshing. So um, it looks looks like there are going to be some changes. And I just hope it continues. Well, it's uh, good to get that perspective on things. Gary, thank you so much for the call. Um, 803-0930 is the number if you want to, uh, like Gary, kind of voice your uh, your personal experience and what perhaps the last 24 hours has meant to you, um, whether you're a victim of abuse or not. Uh, Dave in Buffalo. Dave, you have a question for Charlie? I have a question about his reporting. Back in October, Charlie, you aired a report in which a man accused Father Gatto of abusing him outside a Walmart in the 1980s. 
Well, as you and many of your listeners know, there was no Walmart uh, in the area, in the Buffalo area at all in the 1980s. I mean, Charlie, what do you do to vet these accusations? I mean, these are serious charges, and do you just put any old accusation on the air? Sure. Is this is this Dave Pierre? Yes. Yeah, so this guy is um, kind of like an anti-media uh uh, guy here against he's written books about um you know how the the boston abuse crisis was sort of a hoax um so just to give you that perspective but i will answer um we did look into um the allegation against father gatto and yeah it turns out you're right um there was no walmart at the time so i did go back to um the abuse survivor and tried to check some of this and i guess we settled on um I went back to him, and he didn't even remember saying Walmart. Um, he said that, you know, it could have been another department store. We went back through the the newspaper uh, articles, the Springville Journal, I think it was, and found that there was, he thought it was in Ames. So I looked at the newspaper articles from back then, and there actually was an Ames for about 25 years in Springville, and the dates matched up. Um, so that's as far as that goes. But I think the larger point here was that, um, you know, whether it's a Walmart or an Ames, I mean, to me, the details, um, those particular details, you know, didn't matter as much as is the guy credible. And I think um, I think that if you look at the I would urge people to watch the video of of Gene here. And and I think you see in his face here that this is not something that he's making up. But, you know, you're right. We do have to look into these things. I would say here that also um, it's worth noting that according to the church's own uh, own records here uh, after the Boston abuse crisis, they found that um, the bishops in the United States found that less than 2% of um, claims end up being false. There's a higher number that end up not being sort of verifiable. Um, but we, we do look into that, and, um, you know, if there is a detail like that that, that – um, you know, we're open to, to looking into it more, always. Now, uh, Dave, thank you for the call, by the way. Charlie, it does bring up uh, the larger, you know, you, you kind of mentioned there that the majority of these do turn out to be true. But at a time when, you know, on a completely unrelated matter, trust in the media is probably at an all-time low. Um, for you, going about vetting these things, uh, what are some of the ways that you can share that you make sure um, some of these stories line up how what are maybe some of the steps that you can share that you go through before something reaches the air because it doesn't just go right from phone call to your desk to the news you watch at night no it does not we make it look like that but that's not actually the process so all of my stories are um, vetted and sort of picked apart by our uh, lawyer our corporate lawyer just because of the nature of the work that I do and they will challenge us uh, and say you know well how do you know this so well we've got this document that shows it um, are you sure about this? Can you check this detail? And that's just a standard practice for, for putting our stories on air. But as far as people coming forward, it matters to me how they approach you know you and, and kind of what, um, what their end goal is. Uh, there's nothing wrong with people approaching you and trying to tell their story right away. Some people are more ready than others. But if, if they approach you, um, like, for instance, this um, uh, Gene uh, who contacted us about Father Gatto, he approached us the day after we did a story on Father Gatto and said, oh, my gosh, it happened to me, too. 
And it took us a few days to kind of, you know, sit down. Uh, you know what? It didn't take us a few days. It took us, um, it took us some time to kind of arrange the specifics and find out when, you know, we could sit down and do it. But we sat down across from him, and he did tell us some details. Like in his case, he wasn't assigned to the parish at the time. So I had that question for him. Well, Gene, he wasn't assigned to this parish at the time. Okay. Oh, no, but he said masses there because he was stationed at the seminary. So I questioned him about that. And if, you know, if, if he didn't have a good answer, maybe he would have made a different decision. But sitting across from Gene in the flesh and really, like, listening to the details of his story, you know, you sit across from, from people and you're like, he's not making this up. He doesn't want money. He's, he didn't even file a lawsuit. And even if he had filed a lawsuit, you know, that doesn't mean he's, he's out for money necessarily, maybe trying to use the legal process um, like a lot of Americans do, to try to get answers. And um, for me, you know, we try to verify that stuff. We also go to as many public records as we can. So if somebody says, you know, I, was, I lived in Tonawanda and I was abused at St. Christopher's Church, you'll do a background check on the person and say, well, did they actually live in Tonawanda? Mm-hmm. Um, what year? And, you know, we'll go back to the, the – it's a little tough with the Catholic Church because there's not a lot of public records, but we have gotten uh, priest, priest directories – where essentially it'll tell where the priest is assigned every single year. So if a person says, I was abused in 1983 at St. Martin's, well, was this priest assigned to St. Martin's that year? You know, if he wasn't, that doesn't mean he's necessarily lying, but it's, it's one thing that you, you, know, you, you check against that. So we do try to vet these things the, the, the best we can. For uh, you, Steve, looking at, you know, if somebody uh, comes to you and they're thinking, you know, I can't, it was Ames or Hills or something like that, those details, how much do they matter to you when filing a claim? And how do you, uh, you know, if somebody can't remember, how do you cross that bridge to, uh, you know, is this something we can pursue further? Well, we'll look um, at the record of the, the priest, We'll speak to the person and just give them the eye test and see how they come off. And, you know, sometimes when a person is telling you a story and you ask a question and they don't remember, if they tell you they don't remember, they're probably telling you the truth. If they try to fill in the blanks, then you start to worry. So there was actually one of the things I saw from Bishop Scharfenberger yesterday. When he was asked some questions, he answered with, I don't know yet. That was honest. So when you get to somebody who says, you know what, I'm sorry, I remember this, but I don't remember the next thing that happened. When Ange Ervolino tells the story of being on a trip with Monsignor Harrington, and we have over 10 clients who were on trips with Monsignor Harrington and were abused either in Montreal or in New York City, 10 of them. When he, when he first told his story, he said, I remember the abuse. I cannot tell you how we got home. I don't know how we got back from New York. I don't remember any sightseeing we did. I don't remember any other aspect of that trip. But it was in 1965. What what, what do you remember about the thing you had for breakfast the day you graduated from college? Mm -hmm. Do you remember those details? No one does. So when you have this sort of uh, critical moment in a person's life when, in essence, a bomb has gone off and, and everything that they believed in has changed, and, and, and this person who they thought was safe is now a predator, and they feel guilty for what they think they did with the priest and not what was done to them. Of course they're going to remember that moment, 
But, you know, is it important that it was in a Burger King parking lot and not a McDonald's parking lot? And then you have these skeptics who say, well, if every if every fact is not perfect, then none of this happened. And if none of this happened, then none of this happened to anybody. And that's frankly, that's a load of crap. I think people have to be better than that. And people have to look at the fact, as I said earlier, that eight, nine, 10 year old kids, uh, 13, 14, 15 year old kids are not very good at collecting evidence. And they worked very hard throughout their lives to never tell anyone about this. And then maybe at some point later in life, the average age is in their late 40s that someone can talk about this, they tell a counselor. So if they don't have every detail correct, but they have the important details correct, and those important details line up with others who have given the same story, if a Monsignor Harrington person comes to me and tells me about a trip and sends me a copy of the postcard that they sent their mom from Montreal with Monsignor Harrington, well, I know that that's a real story. I know that that's a real case. So we look at all of these factors. You have to look at the big picture. But what we don't look for is perfection because there is no perfection. There's no perfection in any court case. You know, um, the, the gentleman who just called in, Dave, I mean, um, he's written, uh, he's a blogger, and he's written four or five negative stories about me. And I mean, just to give you an idea of some of the books he's written, I'll read you the titles. Uh, Double Standard, Abuse Scandals, and the Attack on the Catholic Church. Wrote a book called Catholic Priests Falsely Accused, The Facts, the Fraud, the Stories. And then Sins of the Press, the untold story of the Boston Globe's reporting on the abuse crisis. So Dave's not an average Catholic. He's actually a troll. And, um, you know, I, I realize that this is part of doing your job in the media. But there becomes a point when someone is just trying to attack you for uncovering something. Um, I will say that there there has been, you know, a um, there has been questions about whether a priest who's dead can defend himself. And I think those are legitimate questions. It's, it's a fair point. But I also think, gee, that eight-year-old really couldn't defend himself either. Mm-hmm. And there are things that the diocese can do to defend that priest. For instance, they have personnel files that go back years. Were there any other accusations in those files? We now know um, from sources who have told us when a priest dies in the Diocese of Buffalo, according to Siobhan O'Connor, Bishop Gross comes around, you know, like an hour later and gets their personnel file and then says, I'm going to clean this out, and and it comes back, you know, half the thickness. So were those allegations automatically thrown out? We've seen through the records retention policies of the diocese that anonymous allegations against priests were put in an envelope um, and until the priest died. And then when the priest dies, that envelope was destroyed, it was shredded. Mm-hmm. So there is information there that the diocese could defend a priest, but... Are they choosing to, and have they destroyed the records? And still a lot more to get to. Steve Boyd, Charlie Spector, in-studio guest. If you're on hold, stay with us. WBEN Newstime. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, 
a tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. 10.30. Good morning. 10.37 here on WBE and Brian Mazarowski here. Steve Boyd and Charlie Speck joining us live in studio. We are talking about everything that's uh, gone on in the Diocese of Buffalo over the last 24 hours with the resignation of Buffalo Bishop Richard Malone and what that means for people moving forward. Um, we've touched on this a little bit when it comes to who might be asked to testify, Steve. Um, who is that person as of today with uh, this apostolic administrator, Scharfenberger, in place? Well, any witness from the diocese that has direct knowledge of the files that can speak um, about you know, what the corporation knew and when they knew it could do that, that would have been Bishop Malone. So if you imagine... Um, if you were in a car accident with, uh, I don't know, a Pepsi truck, uh, and you bring in the head of Pepsi, well, he doesn't know the trucking operation. So you, the corporation is required to present someone for the deposition that knows the facts and can testify uh, on behalf of the company. And so uh, the diocese will have to bring someone like that. Maybe it's Bishop Grosh. Maybe it's one of the secretaries that uh, had been involved uh, with this for so long. But in Rochester, when they filed for bankruptcy, it was Bishop Matano who took the stand for about four hours. How does this impact those who have filed suit, if at all? In terms of their legal position, it really does not impact them at all. Uh, but emotionally um, and in terms of just how they picture themselves and, and what all of this has meant to them and done to them, I hope that some of them find, as Gary said, just a moment of hope. And there is healing. I'll tell you one thing. The one thing that the diocese has gotten right throughout this process is that they've provided this free counseling. And uh, Jacqueline Joy, who coordinates that counseling, and I spoke a few months ago, and she says, you know, you're one of the only lawyers who sends their clients for the counseling. The diocese doesn't get the records. The diocese just gets the bill. So it's confidential counseling. And every single client who I have urged to go to counseling, and sometimes I say, please, just promise me you'll go once. But every single one who's gone has called to, to tell me that it's working. It helps. So that means there is healing available. And if there is healing, I think it's incumbent upon the church, it's incumbent upon all of us in this world to help these people heal. Joining us uh, on the line right now is uh, attorney Paul Barr. And uh, Paul, looking at uh, maybe conversations you've had over the last 24 hours, uh, people you've been working with day in and day out, how has the last 24 hours changed them? Um, I, I haven't gotten a lot of feedback from my clients about because uh, about how they're feeling because um, sadly I think that they're skeptical. Um, there's there's a lot of cynicism sewn into the process because there's been a lot of lip service. Um, I, they're gar I would say guardedly hopeful and, and as an attorney, but also as a survivor of abuse by a priest myself, um, I'm in that place. I'm guardedly hopeful. Um, it is a special moment because um, 
our voices have been effective. This bishop did step down, but at the same time, it's discouraging to hear the bishop say that he um, was retiring early and to not say um, that he was resigning. So it's a little misleading. The, the way he spins it is a little misleading. And um, so, again, that's why I, I, myself and the clients I've spoken to are guardedly hopeful for the moment. It's, it's a mixed message of sorts, right, where, you, you know, people are being held accountable. Eh, sort of. Well, um, it's right, but Malone is the one who's out. And I don't think it's – I don't think that was a subtle distinction. I think that was a flat-out lie. And I think that yeah. – I think for survivors, they have watched these news conferences and they've seen flat-out lies, lies by omission, dancing around the truth, euphemisms. And, Paul, I think you would agree that uh, at least now, uh, after watching Bishop Scharfenberger – he seemed like he was a straight shooter yesterday. He does. He, 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 he's saying the right things at the right time. Um, but, and, and Steve and Charlie, I, I want to thank you both for your good work um, because it's been that work that, that's moving this forward. Um, unfortunately, it's, it's that work and not the work of the diocese that is moving this forward. They're responding to the work that, is being done, um, and when when the message of the interim bishop is juxtaposed against comments from the movement to restore trust that are seem contrary to what um, the work we're doing, it, it's again it, it leaves me a little skeptical. Paul, we uh, appreciate the time and uh, appreciate the call. Uh, We have some more lines to get to, including Ed in Tonawanda. Uh, Ed, you're on WBEN. Uh, Gentlemen, I got uh, questions. Um, These people that already settled with the uh, diocese uh, when they had their uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, they they got compensated for their, their injuries and all. Um, are, are they? Are any of those people currently trying to sue the diocese, or are they prevented to because they probably signed uh, documents that said that was it? I um, I can only speak for our law firm, which is about 200 cases against the diocese. A hundred of them have been filed. None of our clients settled during the uh, Independent Reconciliation Compensation Program, the IRCP, because when people settled during that program, they signed uh, a release releasing all parties. So. Those, that's a good question. Those cases are all over. They're all over. Do you know approximately how many of those people settled? Yeah, I do. Um, there was about 110 or 120 people, I think, who signed settlements. But the interesting thing about the Buffalo uh, program was that they actually denied more people than they accepted. Uh, there was about 130 people who were denied, not because— they said they weren't believed, but because the diocese put a very strict deadline uh, on the program. And these people, uh, just for they didn't settle after bringing a lawsuit, right? They settled through the program set up by the diocese. Yeah, and the, the program had very specific rules. You had to have reported it to the diocese in some fashion prior to, I think, March 1st of last year. 
and then you had until June 1st to file your application. So a lot of people who were out of state didn't even know about it. And a lot of people, when they finally speak about it, say at age 45, 50, 55 years old, they tell it to their counselor, not to their priest. And if you didn't tell someone in the diocese about the abuse before March 1st of 2018, you were not eligible. Yeah, you know, I did think, I thought that that was a pretty good effort on the uh, Church's part to try to deal with it. So I got to give them some credit for that, you know, because everybody's knocking them. But you know, it sounds like they made some effort to, you know, rectify the situation, I guess. I think that's right. I think some of the rules were a little bit harsh. But I also, uh, in speaking to some uh, folks over there and some of their attorneys, uh, when somebody... Um, was able to say that I told I didn't report it to the diocese, but I mentioned it at my annulment hearing, or um, I didn't report it to the Catholic Center, but I told the Monsignor. I think they were trying to bend over backwards to allow those people into the settlement program as opposed to keeping them out. But the reality was a lot of people had not told anyone in the church because many people left the church. But I, I agree with you. I think there was an honest effort made. The way that worked was that the judges, Judge Gorski and Judge Howe, would listen uh, to the people who were eligible for a hearing, and after the hearing, they would uh, decide whether or not to compensate the person and, and at what dollar amount. The diocese was bound by that dollar amount, but the person who brought the claim was not. So if your case was worth $2 million and they awarded you $100,000, you didn't have to take the settlement. But if the case was worth whatever and they awarded you $100,000, the diocese couldn't say, no, 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 we want to fight this. They would have to accept that as the settlement amount. So there was some independence, but but it also it's our view of that process that the values were very low. Um, our, one of our clients received the highest award uh, publicly known in New York State of $650,000. He was abused at gunpoint for four years with male prostitutes in Toronto at times by a priest who had three complaints face-to-face with Chancellor Troutman, who's now Bishop Troutman, emeritus in Erie. Three people came before this priest was transferred out to Lancaster to abuse my client. And Bishop Troutman or Chancellor Troutman told the boys that came before my client, you shouldn't have put yourself in this position. Why did you let this happen? So when the diocese knew about it, and knew that this was a dangerous predator on three separate occasions. And by the way, Paul Barr was one of the people who went down to the Catholic Center and made a complaint about this very priest. When you have that kind of notice, that's not a case worth $600,000. That's a case that, that maybe a zero is missing. We'll be asking a jury for significantly more than what the judges saw fit to award. All right. We uh, thank uh, Ed for the call there. You, you know, Charlie, you hear some of these stories, how they were dealt with in the past, and it almost—I don't want to say almost—a similar pattern is followed, whether you're thinking about the spotlight story, whether you're thinking about some of the things that happen here in Buffalo. I mean, for you, in a way— has it made your job easier to where you kind of have a, a framework of, okay, this is kind of how it's operated in other areas. I know maybe what I should be looking for because a similar thing is happening here, a similar thing happened in Pennsylvania. 
Yeah, we know what the playbook is. And that, that story that Steve just said, you, you hear that and you're like, my God, that is just, it's awful. It's something you would never even, if you saw it in a movie, you'd be like, this is too sensational, it did, that nothing like that could have happened, but it, but it did. Um, you know, we don't come into this a reporting process by saying, well, everyone you know associated with the church is somehow complicit or evil or something. Early on when we started finding these documents with Bishop Head, I had this kind of great view of him. Uh, my nan, I mentioned, worked for the church as a secretary, and my parents had said, oh, Bishop Head, he was this beloved bishop. Everyone loved him, and he was great, and I, you know, I had a positive view of him and thought, well, they probably weren't doing things as bad as they were doing here in Boston. And then we started to get these memos where they're writing letters to priests apologizing for having to take them out of service for you know, a couple months and then put a pedophile essentially back into service and you know, start to see, gee, they really are doing the same thing here that they did in other places. So it really, it really was a, a kind of a playbook. We keep using that word, but it was the same pattern where you know, they were allowed to put these people back into service just, just as an idea of how they were allowed to operate on their own. We never um, ha- had a chance to put this in a story, but we have memos where um, Monsignor Cunningham, Robert Cunningham, the former bishop of Syracuse, is um, is dealing with this along with Bishop Troutman, and there was a, a case of sexual abuse, and uh, it was judged that the, the boy was believable, and uh, Monsignor Cunningham actually writes in a memo uh, something to the effect of, well, the boy is thinking about getting a lawyer or contacting the police, so clearly he's not in the right frame of mind. And you hear that, and you're like, oh, my goodness. You know, this, is, mm-hmm. this really was something that was, was being hidden at, at all costs. Um, we still have a few minutes left here before we have to break, so I want to get in uh, Chris in Hamburg. Chris, you're on WBEN. Yes, good morning, gentlemen. I, first, I want to say I'm a practicing Catholic. I'm very active. Sometimes I'll do two or three Masses a week. And what I have to say is from the heart, and it hurts me, because this is just the tip of an iceberg, and it's going to continue. I deal with this weekly. I have talked to more people, and what they failed to realize, the damage that was done to children over the years. And it was what they try to comprehend with now is that it's a money game. They haven't accepted it. And, and I just think it's going to continue. And as I told, uh, I think it was Joe, the uh, the call taker, you know, it's 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 just going to continue. It's a tip of an iceberg. There are so many out there, and I know them. I know them. I know them personally that, that go back many moons, many years, and have seen this and why they didn't come forward, why they didn't come forward. And I've been there in their presence when a parishioner will say, this is about, say, I'll use Stephen Boyd, this is about an attorney out to make money. And that someone in power in clergy will say, yes, it's, it is about money. They're, they're, I don't, you know, I wouldn't care if there were nine people that lied, but if there was one child that was violated, so hurt, and so painful, and, and it was passed on from, from priest from, to bishop to bishop, uh, you know, I, I'm very, you know, you can tell by my emotions, I'm, I'm hurt by this. Yeah. Chris, why do you think this has gone on? Why do you think it's taken so long for us to reach this point? I think because, you know, it's just, it's a learned behavior. It will never change. I'll give you an example. I have a brother-in-law that's Muslim. I have dealt with such fine Catholics that have talked about my brother-in-law. Well, he's not, how can you be associated with him? And it hurts. It hurts me. And then, so you learn from someone like that, and they can say those kind of hurtful things about someone in another religion, and of course, 
they're just gonna they're gonna they're gonna just pass this on. And I, I, it, it pains me to say this, but ten to fifteen years from now, it's gonna be the same old story. It's. Sorry to uh, cut you off there, Chris, but that uh, I'm sure that's uh, something you, both of you hear maybe time and time again from people who still, by the way, do go to church uh, once, twice, three times a week. You you don't have to pick one or the other. You don't have to say, oh, I'm either choosing to be disgusted by this or I'm choosing to go to church because there are plenty of people who still want to practice their religion, and you can realize what's going on and say enough is enough. Yeah, I think that um, th- you could hear the pain in, in Chris's voice and sort of the frustration and anger, and that's the biggest thing that I hear from Catholics. I'm Catholic. I still go to church, and it's not always easy to go to church, and I, I'm not going to sit here and say that throughout this crisis I've, I've made every Mass. I haven't, but um, I, I've stayed with it, and I think I've heard from a lot of Catholics that— um, they're just so angry, and it's not—it's not just the abuse, because I think there, you know, there is a truth to the idea that there is not as much abuse going on right now as there was in the past, most likely. Um, but it's the—it's really the the institutional structure of the covering up and the secrecy that hasn't changed. So there's always the chance for more abuse to happen, you know, even if it's at lesser numbers. And I think most Catholics are just fed up with. You know, when we started our stories, I kind of assumed, I was bracing, we're going to get a lot of negative feedback here. It's just part of the job, but especially on this subject. And I would say like 95% of the feedback was positive from Catholics, which I was shocked. And they were just like, you know, please just keep going because we're sick of being lied to. We don't, we don't want, you, you, can, you can deal with abuse, right? You can get rid of predators and pedophiles, and that's a, that's a problem that you can do tangible things. But if the people at the top of the church are telling lies to their own congregation, you can't fix that unless there's a true culture change. As kids, we start to learn the difference between right and wrong in our homes, right? As Catholic kids, that then goes on. If you go to Catholic school, you learn the difference between right and wrong in Catholic school. In some schools, you would go to Mass weekly. It becomes a part of your life. But they taught us the difference between right and wrong. And so now when you hear about this crisis and you can hear the the pain in, in Chris's voice, That's because they taught him the difference between right and wrong, and we know that attacking children is wrong. And then you take a second wrong when you say they knew that they were attacking children, but instead of protecting the children, they protected the institution. And as a Catholic, you almost feel like, you know, I, I, I believe that all people of faith have credibility within their faith, whether they're of any different faith. But as a Catholic, I'm sitting there saying, oh, my faith, we're doing that? Us? Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there, it's offensive because these are the very people that taught us how to apologize. You know, the right way to apologize is don't just say you're sorry and run away. There's more parts to it. Say what you did. Say that you're sorry. How are you going to make it right? That's an apology, right? We all learn that stuff in Catholic school. We all learn the difference between right and wrong with our parents and in Catholic school. So the one thing I would disagree with Chris on, though, is I do think this will be better because young parents today know to tell their kids, if anybody ever tells you that something happened and you can't tell mom or dad, you tell mom or dad immediately. Mm-hmm. Parents can arm their children with defenses that as somebody who was born in the 60s 
we didn't have those defenses. Uh, it's much more with Steve Boyd and Charlie Specht, including, um, you know, moving forward uh, inside the Catholic Church and how uh, people will do that. And, uh, of course, taking your calls, 803-0930 here uh, for one more hour on WBEN. It's 1057. You have the news coming up right after this. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.